0: Hello and welcome to the Care Exchange, the Skills for Care podcast for managers in social care. I'm Pierre Raftier burton
1: And I'm Ali Rusbridge.
0: We're the hosts of the Care Exchange and welcome to Series 2. We're really excited to yeah. be starting Series 2. Well. Um, and we got plans, lots of plans for the next 10 episodes. Many, many great guests planned already. So yeah, it's going to be really, really good. I'm really excited. Yeah. So in, um, if you remember back to series one of the first episode of series ones, we had a CEO, we had owner from Skills for Care as the um, our first guest chatting lots about leadership. And we really liked the idea of having a senior leader as the first episode of each series. So for this series, we have Kate Taroney from CQC.
1: And we're absolutely delighted that Kate um, agreed to be our first guest. And Kate's a registered social worker. She was previously Director of Adult Social Care at Oxfordshire County Council. And she joined CQC as the Chief Inspector of Adult Social Care in May, 2019. So uh, we're really looking forward to talking to her now. So should we get on with the show, Pierre?
0: Yeah, stay tuned and join the show. So welcome, Kate, to the Care Exchange. Thanks very much for joining us today.
2: Very pleased to be here. Thank you. Um,
0: So we've got lots of questions, so let's get on. I know you're really busy. So you must get asked this loads, but can you quickly explain how someone becomes a, a chief inspector and what really interested you about becoming chief inspector?
2: Um, Well, I uh, always had a passion for social care uh, from uh, early on in my school days, I used to uh, volunteer at a residential home near to my family's home, I worked in a women's refuge, so um, kind of social care and, and spending time with people was a passion from a very, very early age. Um, then got a job working as uh, a care assistant in a residential setting um, and uh, kept that going, uh, moved to a different place when I started my social work qualification. So spent four years between the ages of 18 and 22 trained to be a social worker, uh, working in a different uh, residential setting for people with learning disabilities and then spent about 15 years in local government uh, moving up the Uh, The rungs of being a social worker uh, in a hospital setting, working mainly with older people through to learning disability social worker, um, becoming a manager, um, eventually getting a job in commissioning where my my work was about um, designing services and buying services, became a director of social services and then that was my last job before I became uh, chief inspector back in May 2019. Uh, So I I found most jobs I've done have led to the the next job that I've wanted. So when I was director of social services, um, we uh, heard about the plans for CQC to do uh, local system reviews. So um, I I think this maybe was back in 2017, where uh, there was an announcement that 20 local system reviews would be done by the regulator and that they'd be going out to uh, parts of the country that were particularly challenged on supporting People aged over 65 to leave ho- leave hospital in a timely way yeah. and where I was director we had a particular challenge with supporting people to leave hospital in a timely way for a whole host of reasons one of which was having the right workforce uh, so that we could arrange for people to have care at home etc so um, we were one of the 20. I was absolutely terrified when I found <laughs> was coming absolutely terrified <laughs> Many, many, many sleepless nights, um, but worked very closely with my chief execs across um, the hospital trust, the community trust and the clinical commissioning group to get real clarity on what were you going to say to CQC about what we did well and what we could do better. So we had CQC with us for a week and at the end of it, they reflected back to us as leaders. Um, what we were doing well, but also a whole lot of stuff that we could do better. And it was the most sobering, challenging, difficult moment when we had that feedback uh, verbally, but also a report was written. So I feel like I have a teeny tiny glimmer of what it might be like to be a registered manager because, you know, we all take pride in our job and we all want to do the absolute best for, for me, it was the population that we were providing Um, social care assessments, occupational therapy assessments and care services for. And the report was, uh, you know, the report had a lot of criticism in it. And I had a moment when I thought, this is all on me, I should have done better. Um, Am I the right person for the job? Uh, To realising that actually this was the catalyst for us needing to come together across health and social care and and get a lot more clarity about our priorities, etc. So I then spent another year-ish working uh, a whole lot closer with my health partners he came back out again and said that we did a lot we're doing a lot better but still had more work to do and then when the chief inspector job came up I think because I'd had first-hand experience of when uh, how a regulator can drive behaviors that means that people get better outcomes so the fact that um, our experience was of the regulator looking at all different parts of health and social care and they looked at uh, the voluntary organizations we used yeah. looked at how we did co-production etc and because it, it had such a positive impact on how i worked as a director i thought wow what an opportunity to go and be chief yeah. inspector and to try and regulate in a way that really encourages uh, people to improve outcomes for people so that, that was that was my driver for going for the job
0: and what's your role within all that you know what.
2: So- Yeah, so we, (laughs) I've got maybe about 600-ish people who work in my bit of the business, majority of people are inspectors uh, throughout the country, so they go out and they form a view of quality being delivered within each of those registered providers, be it a shared life service, supported living, extra care housing, uh, uh, residential nursing homes, and a, a wide range of things. So they form a form of view of quality within each of those settings, but also we have a pretty unique view as the regulator of hovering over the quality of care being delivered throughout the country.
0: So as most of the chief inspector, you're sort of, I don't know, directing um, directing your team to focus on particular areas or, or think about things in a different way, perhaps. So you've mentioned co-production a couple of times already. Uh, and everything i've read and I've heard you speak a few times have how important that is to you. Why is that? Why is it important to you
2: so as a um as a social worker uh, you know I remember learning very early on in my career that I have done my job well if um I get to know the person I am supporting um and that I understand what them and that their voice their outcome of what they want to happen drives. Every intervention. So if I'm doing an assessment, as I'm going back to my social work days, if I'm doing an assessment and I'm uh, designing a care plan and we're arranging support, that person at every point should be saying what success looks like in six weeks or a year would be. And we did um, some work a few years ago around um, making safeguarding personal where, uh, again, we looked at making sure when um, there's concerns about someone being abused, that they still are absolutely driving what outcome they want as a result of any support. You give them. So, as a social worker, my natural instinct is I've done my job well when I've lifted up the person and what matters to them and arranged things uh, on the back of that. And then fast forward uh, a number of years to being um, deputy director of commissioning, where I suddenly had a very large budget and I was responsible for designing services for adults of working age, older people, and um, I, you know, had a load of experts who worked with me, but actually. Uh, when it comes to redesigning day opportunities or um, services for women who are uh, escaping domestic violence, why would you not have people who use those services in the room with you, along with their families, along with people who actually deliver the care, to, with as much of a blank piece of paper as possible, say, this is the problem we think we need to solve. This is a budget we've got available. Uh, what should we be prioritising? What should it look like? So. Um, As deputy director of commissioning in my previous authority, we uh, developed a kind of comprehensive plan around co-production that I took forward when I became director as well. And I think we evidenced time and time again that when you invite people to the table with you who draw on care and their families and the providers and stakeholders, and you say, this is a problem we've got to fix, or this is the issue we need to do differently you end up with something that people actually want to access that has better outcomes for people but also um you don't blow the bank you know don't blow the budget because you're actually designing something that people want to use and you're targeting Mm -hmm. it so um prior to coming to CQC co-production was in my DNA Mm -hmm. and then joining an organization that is as equally passionate about co-production there was a really nice um Kind of alignment on that and yeah i spent the last two and a half years talking about co-production as a regular. Can,
1: can i ask some people get a bit confused between the term consultation and co-production what, what do you think the difference is with those two
2: there is a really um i feel like this is really simple and clear so so for me um co-production is as I say, starting with as much of a blank piece of paper as possible together. So at that first point coming together and saying, um, so if I was a registered manager and I wanted to, I don't know. Co-produce what uh, activities were available to, or you know, what how people wanted to spend their time. I'd be wanting to sit down individually with people I supported, and as a group, to say what what you know what should the week look like. What what matters to you? How you know where do we want to be going at the weekend? Do you want people coming in regularly and you know I don't know doing music or or art or drama or whatever it might be. So co-production is properly starting with a blank piece of paper consultation or engagement I think is often more where an idea has been pretty much well formed about what the mm. options are and then you go out and you say to people which of these options do you propose you know do you prefer um and they can say oh I prefer option a or option b or you haven't thought about yeah. option c so that is for me that is very very different from co-production should feel like true partnership
1: mm,
0: great and you mentioned you know register managers and how how should they implement co-production in their services
2: so i've got um so i always like to talk ambitious about co-production noting that it's not always you know as uh, you know as simple as it sounds i think about kind of co-production at three levels when i think about um you know say a a social care provider i think about co-production at an individual level where I'd be really wanting to see how care plans are designed based on what matters to the individuals, that they're seen as a whole person with strengths, with history, you know, what was their profession, what matters to them, et cetera. So there's a kind of individual level. And then I see it at a kind of Maybe more service levels. So, if you are someone who draws on care within an extra care scheme, or um, you know, within a you know, within your own home, etc., how how um, if you're a registered manager, how do you involve people? in how things should be running around here. What, you know, I don't know, if you're in a care home, what's the decoration like? How, what, how, the, what's staff's uniform like? Do you sit on interview panels? Uh, do you design the food menus, et cetera? So, so I'd like to see it at an organizational level, which we see a lot. So we usually see individual and organizational. And then at the top of the pyramid, um, I'm really interested in how co-production can happen in terms of thinking about the strategy so this is where i see less evidence of this where you see organisations um bringing in i don't know an advisory group say to be thinking about what their strategic direction is mm-hmm. um you know should they be opening more of this type of service or doing less of this or investing in that and i would love to see co-production happening at every level that an organisation works at um
1: can I ask, uh, you, you know, you, you said you you came from a commissioning background um, in, in your previous role and what would your advice be to say a registered manager who really wanted to um, take on board the things that people they're supporting want to do, but there are constraints on them, maybe through the commissioning process. How do they deal with that dilemma? Because it's a really tough one for some people, isn't it?
2: So it's really tricky. And um, so having been in this job now for two and a half years, uh, a very strong message I got very early into the job was register managers, providers saying to me um, the quality of care that we're able to deliver is so impacted by how we're commissioned, that we mm-hmm. care, how you know how commissioners wish yeah. us to deliver it. Um, so we spent about two and a half years talking about that, about the importance of commissioning. And that's why we as the regulator were really delighted uh, in, with the recent announcement about CQC having a role going forward with local authority assurance. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we are in the thick of um co-producing, thinking about our approach, our methodology as to how we might do that and what it will look like. But again, I will be really interested in seeing how local authorities. Co-produce kind of the services they're buying, how they uh, work in partnership with providers to ensure that people get outstanding care. So I think I think I would recognise that that tension is um, there now, um, and providers are often asked to do a really tough job. You know, mm. deliver really individual, bespoke, person-centred care while you know struggling with um, possibly you know how much they're being paid uh, to deliver the care, or the model of care they have to deliver it within. Um, but I am hopeful, with our new powers going forward, that we may be able to influence more mm. the commissioning piece as well as the, you know what what's delivered
1: by providers. Thanks.
0: I suppose it's also about having conversations, isn't it? So so if register managers are finding that they they are being commissioned uh, or they're only able to be commissioned to put, to deliver care to, you know, at a certain cost and they don't feel they'll be able to provide the Uh, a co-produced care uh, services within that cost is about having keep having those conversations saying you know ideally what you know this is what i want isn't it so having kind of keep having those conversations yes you may have to accept something for a while but if you keep talking about it then why is important to them as a as a as a registered provider um so so we were wondering as well. Um, we've obviously been really aware, and we've participated in some of the changes. The CQC are, are are kind of in the middle of, aren't you really? Um, why should register managers get involved in the co-production of the CQC changes?
2: So CQC does do co-production, and my, from my perspective, CQC goes out to people, either inviting people to expert advisory groups or to co-production events or on our citizens lab. We um, we go out when we don't have fully formed sourced and we genuinely want people's input into it. So if I think about the changes we've made over the last 18 months about, so our strategic, our strategic direction of travel uh, has been, and is set out in our strategy uh, published in May, that we wanna be a much more flexible, responsive regulator, providing more up-to-date information for people People who use our reports to make decisions about where they're going to receive their care from, etc. Um, so that was our direction of travel, uh, and moving away from our inspection activity, often being driven by a previous rating of a service, to. Um, what's our give feedback on care information telling us? What are we hearing from commissioners? What are whistleblowing or safeguarding alerts telling us and, and using that much more to direct where we go? And actually, if I uh, look at how our inspection activity is happening at the moment, um, 65% of our inspections are driven by information we receive from public staff, families, etc. So it was our direction of travel, as with many other people, um, COVID uh, sped up our way, uh, you know, our way of needing to do things differently. So uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, we um, paused routine inspections, we uh, established monitoring calls with providers um, and I the feedback I've generally heard when I've done kind of large presentations to providers is that most, most social care providers talked about these monitoring calls as being supportive, which was what I, I really wanted. I think um, I think what registered managers have had to cope with, I think it's a tough job anyway, mm-hmm. but I think about what they've had to cope with over the last 18 months. I was really keen that their interaction with their inspector at the height of the pandemic was the inspector saying, What's going on for you? What do you need? Have you spotted the latest guidance, just that real kind of shoulder uh, to kind of offload on. And, and from my inspectors experiences, that's what they they found happened. So, um, so we, we established different ways of monitoring providers, um, kind of structured conversations that led to us having a more current view of what was going on out there Um, and we uh, have kind of taken that on a step now in July where each month now we are reviewing the information we have on providers and where there is no information to say to us we might want to pick up the phone to that provider or go and inspect that provider we're publishing a very short statement on the provider's uh, on our page about that provider saying we've had a look at the information and we don't think we need to go and inspect that service at this time. Um, So so that's how we're kind of moving our our monitoring on. And we are are in the thick also of redesigning our assessment framework. So this is where we would really value registered managers input into. Mm. So we're designing a single assessment framework. So the same assessment framework that would inspect a home care provider, that would inspect an acute hospital, that would inspect a GP practice, but also could be used to inspect or, or assure ourselves about a local authority and also about an integrated care system. So it's like this kind of all encompassing um, assessment framework. We are looking at um, Think Local, Act Personal. So TLAP's uh, Making It Real I Statements is the heart of this. Um, And we are engaging now with providers to say, um, so if we're basing it on the I statements, how do we strip out the multiple questions we asked to kind of six six key areas where we're looking for evidence? How much evidence is enough evidence to gather to form a view? What might it look like if we kind of scored some of these evidencing so providers could see where they were within the four bandings of inadequate, requires improvement, good or outstanding? So it's a very active live conversation that we're having now. And we will end up with a better, more effective product if providers get involved registered managers get us get involved and tell us what we've missed what we need to focus on so a big plea from me either through our citizens lab which is our like electronic platform of engaging or coming along to events and please tell us what you think
0: yeah i think i I think it's really important i think it's it's tricky isn't it when you're really busy and you have so many things to do because it's one of those things is on your to-do list and it sort of kind of gets moved down because other priorities but as you say you know this is going to be this is going to be the future, so therefore really important to take time and 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 talk to your i suppose your team as well about what they think is important as well. so it's not just you as a registered provider a registered manager, but it's also um the rest of the team's view um even if they can't all attend so uh,
2: absolutely yeah yeah so now is the, now is the time to get involved in, and shape it, but absolutely appreciate this will be on a, a you know a very long to do list um yeah. for, for registered managers.
0: So just moving on a little bit from co-production. So in series one of the podcast, uh, we talked a lot about uh, the importance of the role and the difficult role of registered manager leading the service. What does leadership mean to you?
2: Leadership is an absolute privilege. So um, as I became more senior through my career today, the the reason why I was so driven to it is is I just kept on thinking What a privilege to be in a position where you set the culture and the priorities for your team. So, when I first became a team manager and I had, I don't know, 10 staff, and then I became a service manager and I had 70, and then the numbers of people that I am responsible for has, has grown really throughout my career. And each step up has been a bigger opportunity to set. Uh, what matters listening to people to use services uh constantly striving to improve um a strong emphasis on support and challenge and feedback so so leadership is uh, is a massive 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 privilege and I love it i you know I, I feel so lucky to have the jobs i've had i think on the flip side of all that um you know kind of freedom and direction setting and uh, ability to be strategic and all that is um the risks that being a leader can feel pretty lonely as well. So I remember when I got my first team manager job, it was back in the day when you had actual offices. You know, since since then, obviously everything is open <laughs> plan and hot desking. But uh, when I first became a team manager, I had an office with a door and my name on a plaque on the door. And I remember, oh, you know, thinking I, you know, made it. There was my name. <laughs> and I remember walking into my office and shutting the door, and all my team was were outside in that open plan space. And I remember just taking this massive gulp of thinking. my good you know oh my goodness i am so on my own and um what am i going to do do i know what i'm doing um was i the right you know it's just massive amount of um uh you know doubt in in that and then i quickly learned the importance of you know building my network and having you know as a leader having other leaders that you could you know let down your guard with a bit and offload and support each other so so I suppose in some ways I'd say leadership is a massive privilege and an opportunity to set priorities and direction. I think it also can be pretty lonely unless you really pay attention to um, your own support network, what keeps you well, uh, what keeps you motivated and high energy, and you know, especially if your your team are going through you know angst and turmoil, um, how do you keep your fuel levels topped up so that you can be what your team and what your service needs you so do.
1: so we know that there 's a, a real need to recruit more registered managers or to employ more registered managers i mean do you think that they need particular attributes or experience or qualifications? What would you say? Is needed to to take this very very difficult role
2: often i find these leadership roles are this kind of combination of needing to be strategic so horizon scanning you know where's my service going what's the next thing that's gonna catch us off guard you know what what, what are the big issues of the day social care reform funding but also these jobs often involve, you know, the day to day operational running of a business. So, you know, your rotors, your, you know, what, what's going on with a you know, a concern you've had from a family member or, or, or uh, whatever it might be. So I think the skill of being able to be big thinking and strategic, but also not taking your eye off the ball of day to day operational running is a very unique skill set. I'm a big believer that having the right values and attitudes, you can kind of turn your hand to most things. So I think you can learn a lot of skills about being a registered manager. I think it's harder to learn having an absolute passion for supporting people with learning disabilities or people who are physically disabled or have mental health needs or whatnot. Um, I think you have to, you know, we do these jobs uh, because, you know, we spring out of bed in the morning because we want to make sure people get high quality care. So I think having the right values and the passion is probably, I don't know, I wonder whether it could be taught. I think it's probably more instinctive. And then a lot of the other stuff, I think, you know, with a bit, you know, with the right training and with the right mentoring and support, um, people can can make that step. But you've got to you've got to come into it with an absolute enthusiasm for Mm -hmm. running the best service possible for the people you support.
1: Brilliant.
0: Yeah. And it leads really nicely onto my next questions because I I know as um, director of social care for Oxfordshire you were of uh, Oxford County Council you did some amazing work around value-based recruitment um that's since sort of kind of been rolled out nationally so what you talked a little bit about the values the, uh, of people working in social care why do you think that's important what's the role of values in social care
2: so I believe being a being a care worker is one of the toughest but most rewarding jobs that you can have out there so I don't think there's a job. Well, in my experience, there is not a job that you end a shift and come home as a care worker you can directly see the impact you've had on the person you're supporting so the fact you took 10 extra minutes to listen to you know them talk about their day or their grandchildren that were you know that's in a photo on their bedside table or you know you supported someone to become slightly more independent or think about their their plans their wishes etc being a being a care worker is um is so unique in terms of directly seeing the impact you can have on someone um it's also completely exhausting and it doesn't have the status and value in society that it absolutely should have you know most people could not do the job of being a care worker a support worker Mm. um and the people that need to come into the sector and we need to keep in the sector are people who um are great listeners are compassionate can empathize um know can put the the views what matters to people at the heart of how their care is being delivered etc so they are there there are a set of values that are that 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 you absolutely need to be in this sort of job Uh, and and that's why i believe that kind of values-based approach to recruitment making sure we get people into the business who have this complete passion for delivering care is so important because a they'll do a good job but b we're also more likely to keep them in the sector because Mm. uh, they're here because they want to make a difference each day um rather than be doing a different job that might be slightly easier but has less less of an impact on people
0: yeah so it's really about focusing on those values when you are recruiting rather than looking at looking at the skills which i know is what you sort of started out in oxfordshire to uh to implement uh, we noticed that part of CQC strategy, you talk about the equality objectives. There's about tackling equality and you have a diversity inclusive, inclusive strategy in your, for your workforce. What advice would you give to registered managers about setting equality objectives? I think
2: it's really important for people um, to... Uh, research and understand and believe uh in how having a you know equal workforce having a diverse workforce having a uh, a workforce where people come to the table with very different perspectives and backgrounds and views we do that not to hit a target or to hit a uh, you know a, a key performance indicator we do that because the work that your team produces is of a better, is a better, of a better standard. So if I'm sat around a table with three people who think exactly like me and nod Mm -hmm. away at every suggestion I make, I'm going to have a poorer product than if Mm -hmm. I sit around Mm -hmm. the table with people with very different views, who uh, can turn the ideas on its head and uh, kick it around. And I think the output um, of what you deliver when you have diversity of thought is so much better than uh, what you deliver when you're sat around with everyone who views the world from exactly the same lens. So I I think, um, uh and i read a uh i've read a book maybe about a year or two ago matthew Syed's. um it is called Rebel. I'm just looking at it. It's on my bookshelf. It's called uh, Rebel Ideas. And he um, he, he you know, he basically has a whole book with a whole lot of scientific evidence that says um, having diversity of thought makes for better businesses as, as, as well as being the right thing to do. So I, I think because um, there's a lot of focus on, quite rightly, equality and diversity, I think the starting point is doing a bit of learning to check that this is
0: know do you Mm. believe
2: in it and then it'll feel a little bit less um you know going through the motions rather than doing something you think is right to do and then i always believe in um being quite ambitious so even if you're you know even if you're not sure exactly how you're gonna hit hit it i think having a really ambitious conversation that says Mm -hmm. what would it look like if we were able to achieve this um that kind of uh, we used to do it when i was um When I was a person-centred planning coordinator, I used to work with adults with learning disabilities and we did something called person-centred plans where we we supported the person to think about their big vision, their big dream, Mm. and then to think about where they are now and how they get there. And that is a technique I use on every away day. I still have now, I had one last week, where we do the, you know, if there weren't barriers or restrictions, where are we headed? What's our North Star? And then let's work out the direction we're trying to go in. And then let's think about the practical steps we need to get there. So I said my two things are, learn about it, read about it, check that it is, you know, that you, truly authentically think it's what you want to be doing to get better outcomes for people and then think about being ambitious with it.
1: So it sounds like that's a more important process than just coming up with a set of objectives or would you say it's important for managers to have equality objectives?
2: So I think that you want that to be the product of having done the thinking and the planning. So I think things are more likely to happen when you genuinely um you know you, you genuinely believe it and you're gonna so you know d- doing things like tackling inequalities and you know bringing more diversity at every level of our organizations these are really tough things to crack mm. and my thinking would be you're more likely to crack them if you're persistent and you'd be more likely to be persistent if you really you know if you really believe this is how you're gonna get better outcomes for people so you need to have them but i'd maybe do a bit of work before you jot them down to yeah. think
1: so it's- not just writing things on paper for the yeah, sake of it <laughs> <no>. <laughs> right
0: and i, and I think I, I like that you know you kind of think about the you know the craziest idea you know how, how are we you know the, the really sort of kind of Thinking about you know this is the how we wanted, but you know you're sort of almost shaking your head while you're writing it down because you think, Oh, this is never going to happen, but actually then breaking it down and just saying little step by step, and you may change your direction as you go along because sometimes you find out more don't you mm. uh, and then you think, actually no uh, you know I know our ambition was this mad thing, but actually the mad thing, plus a little bit extra, is even better. Um, that sounds like really good advice for just the managers because I think it can be quite a tough thing to. Mm to think about and, and and make sure you get right, you know I'm sure that lots of managers are sort of thinking well it's something that I need to think about but I'm not sure that I'm going to get this right so doing a bit of uh, research as well will be really helpful. Thank you for that. So with CQC's new approach and sort of kind of greater concentration on monitoring, what do you think are the most important thing that managers should be doing?
2: I think carry on doing your job. I I I get a bit anxious um or when when man, registered managers are doing things just for the regulator kind of makes me a bit yeah. like what we see should be a byproduct of registered managers delivering great care and looking after their workforce and all that sort of thing. So so I hope that we are, you know, way down the list of in uh, you know, audiences to think about, but you you if registered managers get on a focus on what matters, which is, you know, we did a report a few years ago about what uh, how services can go up kind of two ratings level, levels from inadequate to good or requires improvement yeah. outstanding. And that, that there was a, there's a number of hints and tips, but at the heart of it is happy happy workers equals high quality care. So as a registered manager, you know, let's 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 focus on our workforce, let's focus on you know great person centred care for the people you're supporting. And then anything the regulator needs to see should just be a byproduct of, of what you're you're doing now. Um, I am the the what we did around the monitoring calls where it felt like the dynamic for some registered managers and inspectors that dynamic shifted a bit to one of support offloading, you know, sharing ideas and whatnot. I I do want to harness some of that shift in dynamic because um, you know we we have. know we need to keep the professional boundaries of inspector provider but also an inspector will form a more accurate view of what's going on with that provider with that service when they understand the type of care that's being delivered they understand the local context uh they know what's going on with the acute trust and the commissioners etc so i am keen to continue to build uh, that relationship so a registered manager can Ping their inspector and say, you know, this is something I'm planning on doing or or whatnot. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so so I think main focus of register manager is you know, focus on your day job as you would do anyway, and supporting your staff and delivering high high quality care, servicing the the regulator should be a byproduct of that. But I want to continue to build on the the kind of I think the dynamic shift for some register managers and inspectors about that. You know slightly more coaching style a bit more um you know a registered manager would pick up the phone and talk to their inspector about something that's going on for them because they want to they want to share it
0: yeah it's interesting i know when i was a registered manager um i, I work with somebody who um Uh, a sort of kind of senior senior manager who was very keen on on emailing you know kind of being in touch with my inspector and at the time it was something that I hadn't previously experienced but um, you know got really you know got really into it I didn't always get a response if the person was busy but I felt that you know by sort of saying and sometimes it wasn't all terrible things sometimes it was good news yeah. you know you know something we were really proud of so rather than waiting to that inspection happening you know, it, you know obviously not every day but it was something occasionally if I felt oh the inspector should know this yeah. I'd email the inspector and just say yeah. you know this is what's happening in my service I thought you'd like to know yeah. um or if you were having some sort of event I'd always invite the inspector They rarely would a- was able to come because of, of time but at least they knew that this was you know we were open we wanted anybody to come into my service and 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 view what we were doing and and have a good relationship with us mm-hmm. um and and I, and I hear that that's what you're sort of saying to keep in touch with your inspector and and making them aware of the the good and the bad things that's happening in your service
2: yeah so i think the way you've described it is perfect Pia. so it's um you know so inspectors will have a large portfolio so i wouldn't always expect a response to everyone and also be um you know as as registered managers would be uh don't don't bombard them, Uh, but but also I suppose, you know, if we think about where we're going as a regulator, so our ambition of um, things like the provider information return, of having a much more fluid way of providers sharing information with an inspector and an inspector dipping in and looking at it and doing something or not doing something with it. So I I want to, you know, where I want us to get to is there's that much more fluid kind of two-way stream of communication. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Thanks for that. Um okay, we've always had a, a, a slot we call time for care in every episode. And this is really a chance for you to share what your most time-saving tip is. Have you got advice for, for others? I have
2: well, this is so what so when I'm under pressure, uh I sometimes forget to do the things that keep me well so when I'm under pressure I sometimes forget to uh take a break and I you know sometimes think I haven't got time for a lunch break I need to plow on through and what I've learned over the years is I am a whole lot less effective when I've not had a break so I almost (laughs) with almost 100% not quite but um my most time saving tip is having a break so I you know a a 20 minute quick walk around the block a quick bit of yoga. whatever it might be, stepping away from my desk and catching a bit of fresh air, I come back and I can blast through my afternoon's worth of work. I, I sometimes slip and in the past I would try and plow on through and I was a whole lot less effective and everything took me a lot longer. So my my uh, tip would be, and I don't know what other people think about it, but my tip would be um, having a break makes me a whole lot more time effective.
0: Sounds a great tip. Yeah, <laughs> I, no, really good I really advice. I agree with that. And uh, like you, I, I try very hard to uh, to do that. Don't always achieve it, but I try I, really hard.
1: I can advise getting a puppy because it makes you walk out of the house at regular intervals. And that's really helped me. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for that. Um, and thanks for all you said and highlighted from a CQC perspective. But just sort of wanted to finish on a little bit of a more personal note. So um what are your hobbies or interests that you have that you think define you best I mean obviously having a break is giving an idea there but what what are your hobbies and interests
2: I'm a mum of two daughters um one's just about to become a teenager in a couple of weeks time so that that's uh, <laughs> that's quite uh that's quite consuming uh but love it um so yeah a mum the way I like to spend my spare time I'm a runner uh, oh. I find that um Running is almost the only only point in my twenty four hour period, apart from sleeping, where I don't think, which is a really nice bit of respite, because I, my brain probably like most people is very busy all the time with millions of things whizzing through it. And I have points on every run where I'm just in the moment and I'm just running. And I also sometimes find that if I'm stuck on something work-wise, uh, you know, when I'm 20 minutes into to run, sometimes I get a bit of clarity on what I need to do. So I run, um, I do a yo- bit of yoga, like 10, 15 minutes of yoga most days. And I try to, With varying degrees of success, I've got the Headspace app on my phone, which is like a really accessible meditation app. And I try to do like a three minute, three or five minute meditation. But I, I I still—you're not going to judge how you are on it, but I am absolutely terrible. (laughs) Um, I I am (laughs) endeavouring to. It's all. I suppose it's all. I I suppose my my downtime is all about trying to look after my physical and mental well-being yeah. so running yoga meditation then obviously i do all the stuff like seeing friends and family that that keeps me
1: happy and engaged as well that's great we've had quite a few runners on as guests on the podcast actually there's a theme coming out here that's great
0: yeah and i would really recommend i'm i'm a runner i really recommend to download some podcasts and listen to them while you're running <laughs> just to kind of add <laughs> you or i'll just you know i just think you get you get really into the flow or whatever people are talking about um, and you may even be talking to somebody right now who's who's running so
1: or or when you're dog walking okay (laughs) (laughs) so um one final question um imagine we're in a lift and we're on the 10th floor going down and before people get out you want to tell them what you think is most important so your key message really for the registered managers that listen to this podcast that you want to leave them with what would you say they
2: know this but my message would be that uh Lifting up the voice of people who draw and care and that being w- what drives everything, what drives who you recruit to work with them, what drives how your services is organised, What how they're how they supported to spend you know their time. Um, the voice of people who draw and care need to be at the heart of everything we all do. And if we get them at the heart of everything we all do, everything else will fall into place.
0: That's great. great. Yeah, I think we got there. We got to the bottom <laughs> now. <laughs> doors are opening. That's, that's a really
1: <laughs> lovely message to leave people with. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah.
0: yeah, brilliant. And I, I, could only, I can only agree with you. So thank you so much, Kate. That was so interesting, so useful. Um, and I'm sure there's some real top tips that the managers who may be listening to this can take away. Um, so thank you very much for your time today. My yes, pleasure. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Bye. that was really amazing yeah Such an interesting conversation with Kate she has so much good stuff to to think about to reflect on mm. um I think the re- the thing that's really stood out for me was uh her talking about the tra- challenging role of working as a register manager or a- as a manager in, in general and you mm. know the part she which really tr-
1: recognized how difficult it was didn't she she yeah, she, she said that several times
0: yeah and and you know that I think we can all um, reflect and 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 um, sympathize with that closing the door and thinking, Oh no, can I actually do this? you know I feel mm. a bit lonely now I feel a bit lost you know you know it must be you know i i I can only kind of say, yeah, absolutely I've been there and uh, <laughs> I thought that was really interesting when she said that, and when you think about registered managers and particularly new registered managers um just reaching out and she was talking a lot about you know making sure that you're looking after yourself and and yeah. connecting with others and and using the skills of care membership to do that it's a really good way of doing it you know being a member um uh, connecting via the um skills for care facebook page our facebook page for registered managers is a really good way of Mm -hmm. of connecting Mm -hmm. with other managers and feeling well actually even though i I sometimes feel alone um there are other people out there who can who are in the same situation as i am and they can connect with me
1: yeah absolutely The thing I was reflecting on was, isn't she a brilliant um, example of a career pathway in social care? You know, she started as a volunteer and she worked her way out through so many different roles, you know, in terms of that. And I think it's so good to see examples of of people like Kate who've started young and and had a passion for social care and seen it through different things. And and it really goes against those sort of myths that we've got about care being a dead end job. You know, I, I think she's a brilliant example of that. The other thing that I was really struck by Um, when she was talking about leadership and we asked her what that meant for her and she was saying about leadership, Uh, the importance of leadership in setting the culture of the team and I was thinking that was a really important point because you know that role of the leader in in producing the culture you know we I I think we've mentioned it before but we've got that resource on creating a positive workplace culture and the tool and the ideas there and it's such an important issue because that workplace is just you know the culture is so influential isn't it and she also said to look after your staff and almost the rest will follow didn't she so that creating that sort of strength and support to the staff yeah. will, pro- will produce good quality care i thought that was really powerful what she said yeah. there
0: yeah happy workers equal happy uh, high That's quality it. care. Yeah. you know that you yeah. know, what a, we should have that as a slogan yes <laughs> <That's>
1: a, <laughs> it's a little soundbite there isn't <laughs> it yeah, yeah.
0: absolutely really really great and i think you know and i think it, it, her final statement really summed her up and i think um you know, everything that she spoke about, I know she was talking about workforce and leadership, but really having the person that's been, yeah. that's getting care, um, being the center of everything that you're doing, yeah. uh, which is what she was saying right at the end, uh, as, as the lift was going down. Yeah. Again, we do have a resource. It's a fairly new resource, actually. It's called Person-Centered and Community-Based Working, which doesn't sound like a, um, you, you know, it might be a bit of a confusing title, but really when you look at that resource, it, kind of goes through what are the things to think about if you are creating a person-centered place of working but also has some really good templates got a self-assessment tool it actually links to those um, t-lab I statement that kate also Mm. talks about so it's worth checking out that that um that tool and just kind of looking at you know what are we doing in terms of person-centered care
1: yeah yeah it was so good that she had that as a final statement wasn't it you know reminds us what we're all in it for
0: yeah and that's you know that's why we all get up spring out of bed as you put it yes (laughs) quality care well that was it for this time uh hopefully a great way to start series two um and um we hope you continue to enjoy listening to the care exchange see you soon bye
1: see you next time